We've all heard about CIA plots to kill dictators or politicians. But what about when the CIA decides it wants to kill one of its own? Welcome, welcome, welcome to the KMH Podcast, our inaugural podcast, in fact. My name is Brad. I'll be your host through this and all the future ones. I really appreciate y'all tuning in, giving me a chance to entertain y'all, and I hope that this goes as well as I think it will. To start off with, since we're dealing with killing, missing, and hidden stuff, we're going to do a killing. Uh, It's the unfortunate story. Many of you probably know, especially if you're into unsolved murders, conspiracy theories, or just the general unexplained. It's Dr. Frank Olson. Now, quick background information on this fella. He was born in Wisconsin, got his PhD in bacteriology. Had no idea that was a thing, but there we go. Dr. Germs. He was a captain in the U.S. Army Chemical Corps and married with three children when our story begins. After retiring from the Army, he was recruited to join the U.S. Army Biological Warfare Lab as a civilian scientist over at Camp Diedrich. This lab worked to create secret bioweapons to help fight the Cold War. He was Dr. Olson was hired specifically to help find a way to aerosolize anthrax in 1943. So he was going to take something that was horrible and make it even more horrible. During the course of his time there, he he creates things that are reminiscent of what James Bond would have to play with. Um, Lipstick that kills as soon as it touches human flesh pocket lighter that would emit a lethal gas. Um, He even created an inhaler for asthma patients that, instead of helping them breathe, gave them pneumonia. That's what being a scientist at the CIA was all about, apparently. I guess when you major in germs, you work with germs. After World War II, there was Operation Paperclip. Again, most folks know what this is. In case you don't, it was when the United States worked to recruit Nazi scientists to come to our country with the promise that they wouldn't be pursued for any war crimes. Dr. Olson was assigned to work with some of these Nazi scientists on something called Project F. It was a super-secret program that was designed to test fluoride as a potential chemical weapon. Apparently, the same stuff that cleans our teeth in its raw form can be quite deadly. Uh, Apparently, to the nervous system in particular, as that's what Olson and his Germanic friends focused on. Olson did a good job for the CIA and was ultimately promoted to serve as the founder and acting director of the Special Operations Division at what now is called Fort Diedrich. The operations conducted by this division were so secret that no written records existed. No one was allowed to enter the facility with any sort of paper, pens, pencils, crayons, anything. It was 100% paperless. No idea how that operated in the 40s. The primary goal of the SOD 
was to establish new and effective means of interrogations by the way of biological agents, which is just all kinds of creepy and scary. Now, even though Olson kind of designed and founded SOD, he didn't remain the acting director very long. Uh, he had a bit of a mouth on him. He didn't mind saying what he felt was the right thing to say, regardless of who heard it and whose toes he stepped on. So he was soon demoted uh, and was directing special projects, which was a fancy way of saying he stuck poison into a bunch of animals to see how quickly it killed him. I believe I read somewhere that he would come into work every morning to a pile full of dead monkeys, which is just one of the most horrific things I can imagine walking into every day at work. As part of his duties, Olsen would have to travel a lot, particularly to London and Berlin, surrounding areas. There he worked with other CIA agents and foreign equivalent in conducting uh, interrogations using some of the techniques he pioneered. And it was, frankly, extremely brutal. Soldiers, volunteers, prisoners were forced to participate in these experiments. I remember reading one account where in Britain, they took some volunteers from the soldiers, marched them into a room, released sarin gas, and watched how quickly it took them to die. Now, Olsen's not some evil Bond villain. This, this experience really shakes him up. He, he didn't really understand what he was creating and what he was unleashing to the world, apparently. In fact, his demeanor changed so much that Dr. William Sargent, who was a psychiatrist overseeing the projects in Berlin, actually reported to his superiors that he was concerned about Olsen being able to keep his mouth shut and thought that he would be a potential security risk. So we've gotten through the precursor events for Olsen. Let's take a step back and see what the CIA's been up by while Olsen's been killing monkeys. In 1974, the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission issued a memorandum and basically said, CIA, it's cool if you use LSD. So, of course, the CIA took this and ran with it. Project Bluebird was founded in 1951 with the goal of further understanding human behavior and ways of controlling it, including, as horribly creepy as this sounds, taking individuals, conditioning them to perform acts, either in the short term or the long term, that they normally would not be expected to perform. One report I read said this was an obsession of the CIA. They thought this was the key not only to winning wars against the Soviet Union and Korea and China and other countries, but this was a way to gain world mastery, to never have to worry about wars in the future. Okay, so Project Bluebird soon gave birth to Project Artichoke. And that was an operation that took things a step further. They wanted to find a way to induce amnesia in everybody that had contact with a CIA agent. And they were trying to do this by way of a pill. This project soon gave birth to another project. This one known as MK Ultra, which you've probably heard of because it is a very well-known CIA program that was focused on mind control. 
So not only was the CIA looking to take control of people for a short period of time or condition them to perform some action. Nah, we, we just want total mind control, baby. That's what we're going for here. How awesome is that? And we're doing all this, of course, behind closed doors where nobody can see what's happening. Dr. Marshall Chadwell was the director of Project Artichoke, and he was the first one to really get running with the whole LSD vibe. He opened up a testing center in New York. He got subjects from the CIA that were deemed expendable. These, again, were prisoners, volunteers, or workers that the CIA just was tired of having around. Dr. Chadwell did his best to find a way to make LSD useful, but shockingly, all he could do is produce confusion among his test subjects. In April of 1953, Sidney Gottlieb, the CIA's chief poison maker, which is such a cool thing to put on your resume, became the head of Project MKUltra. And under direct orders from CIA Director Doulis, began testing various mind control techniques on unknown subjects in response to fears that, again, China, Korea, the Soviet Union were doing the same to U.S. prisoners. Not only were they doing this on volunteers, they were recruiting academic institutions, universities to do the same thing, and were providing them with grant money to help them accomplish these goals. Okay, so we're caught up here. Dr. Olson, remember, has been re reported for not having total blind faith in the CIA's cause. The CIA is out there just drugging up folks they call expendables. And the leadership of the CIA is having all these wet dreams about developing mind control techniques. And there's been scores of dead monkeys. Let's not, let's not forget the poor dead monkeys. In November 1953, Olson along with several other CIA scientists, are invited to what's called a Deep Creek Rendezvous. This was a meeting that was held a few times a year by Gottlieb so that his scientists could interact with scientists from the Special Operations Division. On its face, it was designed to provide a way for scientists to kind of share war stories find ways around problems, discuss issues they're having. Not only did Gottlieb attend, but several of his top lieutenants, including his deputy, Robert Lashbrook. This rendezvous in November of 1953 was advertised to the participants as one dealing with sports reporters. No idea what that means at all. I don't know if they were going to try to recruit sports reporters to work for the CIA if they were going to try some of this mind control shenanigans on them, or if they were going to eat them. So they have a huge dinner. I'm going to presume not featuring sports reporter fillets. And afterwards, Gottlieb served everybody drinks. Well, his lieutenants got normal alcohol. The SOD scientists, guess what they got? That's right, the LSD. Once everybody had finished their drinks, Gottlieb, and I can only imagine him doing this in the most gleeful Mr. Burns-ish way, announced to everyone that, guess what? Some of y'all been drugged. As you can imagine, this didn't go over swimmingly. Several of the participants were a little peeved. 
It said that Olsen was amongst the most annoyed. Uh, I think it was described in one article as he lost it. He was furious at what was done, had no problem telling Gottlieb where he could shove his little experiment, but uh, it was too late and he slowly started falling under the spell of the drug. He claims he lost the ability to tell the difference between reality and fantasy. And this is just me speculating, but I'm guessing that the souls of those monkeys got some revenge during this trip. If you haven't noticed, I'm actually sponsored by a group that pays me every time I say the word monkey. Monkey. Monkey, monkey, monkey. The next morning, Olsen, he's not really in better shape. And of course, he's still really upset. When he returns to work the next day, Monday, he immediately goes to his boss, Vincent Ruet, and tenders his resignation. Now, Ruet was one of, also one of those suckers, uh, scientists who was drugged and described the event as one of the most terrifying things he had been through in his life. Nevertheless, the boss of the monkey murderer convinces Olsen that he is overreacting and encourages him to visit an independent psychiatrist in New York that he knows. The psychiatrist, again, shockingly, is actually a CIA doctor. But he's not a psychiatrist. He is one who specializes as an allergist slash pediatrician. So let's, let's stop here and let's kind of Monday morning quarterback this situation. You've got this scientist who's a doctor of germs. He's created all these crazy little gadgets to kill people. He slaughtered monkeys by the hundreds. He was drugged without his consent and decides he wants to quit the cause because, you know, things are getting a little weird at work. His boss, instead of letting him walk, says, let's send him to a CIA doctor. Let's lie to him and tell him he's not really a CIA doctor. And you know what? Let's not get him a real psychologist. Let's get him a doctor whose specialty is to tell you when to feed your kids peanut butter. Yeah, no flaws in this plan, huh? It's beautiful. In a turn of events that no one could possibly ever see coming, Olsen suffers a nervous breakdown shortly after meeting with the psychologist, and I'm doing air quotes, and is diagnosed of having a severe sense of paranoia, again speculating of monkeys, This time, he's sent to a real CIA psychiatrist, Dr. Harold Aberson. Now, Dr. Aberson works on the MKUltra projects and was handpicked by none other than Gottlieb, a.k.a. Poison Cook Extraordinaire, a.k.a. Head of MKUltra, a.k.a. Paranoid Old White Man, to meet with Olsen and try to help him. Olsen travels to New York to meet with Aberson. He's accompanied by his boss, Ruet, and Gottlieb's chief lieutenant, Lashbrook. You know, just for funds. Kind of a buddy road trip, I imagine. Aberson, being a real psychiatrist, actually manages to calm Olsen down. In fact, Olsen gets to the point where he feels like he can return home. But while still in the brotherhood of his evil traveling companions, Olsen stops the trip when they get to Washington. He asked Ruet to just let him go. He's too ashamed to face his family and, and doesn't want to bear that stress. Ruet says, I can't just let you go. And they talk for a bit and they decide, hey, let's go back to New York and see Abramson again. At Abramson's home in Long Island, spoiler alert, this is kind of important, 
Olson has another session with the psychiatrist. Things go great again. So maybe things aren't as nefarious as they seem. Could we actually be seeing kind of a warmer, kinder, gentler CIA? Um, no, no, not at all. After the session, Aberson wants to meet with Lashbrook, and they talk for about 20 minutes. We don't know what about, but I'm guessing Aberson wasn't just trying to sell candy bars for his nephew's school field trip. The next day, Olson has a third session with Aberson, this time at his New York office. At the conclusion of the session, Aberson recommends Olson consider committing himself to an institution in Maryland, and Olson actually agrees to this. Lashbrook takes charge and drives Olson over to a nearby hotel so they could spend the night before Olson takes his trip down to Maryland. The two men have dinner together, and Lashbrook reports that Olson seemed actually to be looking forward to his time in the institution. He rambled off a list of books he wanted to read, some little mini-projects he wanted to play with while he was alone. Lashbrook went so far to say the old Dr. Olson was back. But like any good horror movie, the bad things happen right as the situation is starting to brighten. Olson and Lashbrook shared a room on the 13th floor of the hotel, room 1018A. Apparently that night, the men go upstairs, they watch some television, talk about what a curse monkeys are to the world, then go to sleep. If you're like me, you're probably wondering what happened to Ouellette. Looked it up, didn't find an answer to that question. At 2.25 a.m., Lashbrook is awoken by this horrible crashing noise. Olsen, it turns out, has thrown himself out of the hotel window and fallen 13 floors to his death. Nearby witnesses rush to Olsen's side, but he's in too bad a shape. He does attempt to communicate with one of the people giving him aid, but his words can't be made out, and he dies there on the sidewalk on November 28, 1953. Now we're going to get to the good part, the CIA cover-up. This used to be a subject of conspiracy theories, but no, that's, that's been confirmed now. There was a clear cover-up. It started with Sheffield Edwards. He was a security man for the CIA and was in charge of the cover-up efforts. Yes, that's, that was his job. So F. Edwards' plan was actually kind of simple. First, he went to the New York PD and convinced them to let the CIA handle this investigation. They agreed to share information with the NYPD, but they actually fed them false information, which of course was leaked to the press. Second point of the plan, Edwards needed to establish a fake career for Lashbrook ASAP so that when he spoke with police, there was no connection between him and the CIA, and especially between him and Project MKUltra. Third, Edwards wanted to get the Olsen family on board, placated, and keep them cooperative. Certainly not by telling the truth. Edwards dispatched agent James McCord to Lashbrook and the hotel to immediately start working on a new career background before Lashbrook could be interviewed by the police. Lashbrook had his interview with the police at the station and also identified Olson's body. While this was going on, McCord stayed behind to make sure the hotel room, which had not been thoroughly searched yet, contained no information that could link either Olson or Lashbrook to the CIA. And fun fact, McCord was one of the burglars in the great big old Watergate event of the 70s. 
If only we could all do so much good in the world as McCord. Okay, so Lashbrook returns to the hotel after identifying Olsen's body and starts making phone call after phone call after phone call. One of those calls is to Gottlieb, who orders him to go back to the office of psychiatrist Dr. Abramson and to grab a report and personally hand-deliver the report to back in Washington. Again, don't know what was on the report. That seems to be a bit of hidden information. Knowing how bureaucracies work, it was probably an expense report. So the NYPD, based on the evidence provided to them by the CIA, rules Olson's death a suicide. There's actually an Unsolved Mysteries episode focused on this case, and they had an interview with one of the detectives who arrived at the scene. He made the comment that he had seen plenty of people jump to their deaths, but he ain't never seen anybody jump to their death after crashing through a window. Yeah, I didn't mention that, did I? That loud crash, that was Olsen throwing himself through the freaking window rather than opening it. I mean, he was hardcore to the end. So things rock rock along pretty well for the CIA until 1975, 20-plus years later. The Washington Post runs a story about Olsen's death, including details regarding the LSD he had been given and his subsequent mental breakdown. Two weeks later, the Olsen family holds a press conference where they announce that they'd be filing suit against the CIA and the government for the cover-up. Folks apparently don't take real kindly to being lied to about how a family member died. The Manhattan DEA even got got in on the fun and said they'd reopen their investigation into Olsen's death. Ultimately, nothing ever came of that. The White House had alarm bells ringing like crazy. President Ford did not want to risk exposing any CIA secrets through a lawsuit. Ford's chief of staff, who was Donald Rumsfeld, and his deputy chief of staff, who was Dick Cheney, came together with a plan. They recommended that President Ford offer a public apology, express regret over the incident, and meet personally with Mrs. Olson and the Olson children in an effort to defuse the situation. President Ford agreed. He liked the plan. So he had the Olson family come to the White House. He also had the family meet with then CIA Director William Colby. Colby apologized and blamed the situation on a few scientists who were given a little too much authority and not enough oversight and promised that this would change. There would never be a situation like this again. And White House lawyers kindly offered the Olsons $750,000 if they would just go away. They agreed. Okay, so back to Olson's death in 1953. At his funeral, Gottlieb approached the Olsen family and promised that if they ever had any questions about Olsen, he would do whatever he could to help answer them. Well, the Olsen children decided to take him up on that. So in 1984, roughly 10 years after the settlement and the whole photo op at the White House, they tracked down Gottlieb and approached him at his house to ask him about what was going on. Gottlieb was suspiciously defensive and explained that the LSD experiment occurred to see what would happen if somebody as valuable as their father were ever captured and drugged by the Soviets. Gottlieb admitted, you know, look, we went a little far, but so did all the scientists in this program. We were pushing hard, trying to find new ways to protect America. It's kind of fun living in a world where Drugging a man against his will, causing a nervous breakdown, and eventually a suicide can be called going a little too far. All right, we're going to jump in our time machine again and go forward another 10 years. Mrs. Olson passes away. She is buried separately from her her husband, which the Olson kids just can't abide. 
and they decide to move their father to a plot next to their mother. While Dr. Olson's body was being exhumed, Eric Olson, being the crafty little bugger he was, got a forensic pathologist to examine his father's body before it was transported. And the pathologist made some odd findings. He determined that Dr. Olson had suffered a large hematoma across his left eye that was likely due to a significant blunt force trauma. Why this is odd is because Dr. Olson hit the ground on his back. The pathologist determined the hematoma could only be a result of Olson being struck before he fell to his death. Equally odd, there was no evidence of glass in Olson's hair, his neck, or his head. Both of these findings specifically contradicted the original coroner's report. This led the pathologist to ultimately opine that Olson's injuries suggested he was attacked, took a hard blow to the face, then was tossed from an open hotel window. Now, there's an interesting little coincidence with the pathologist's theory. At the time of Olson's death, CIA agents were being trained that if they ever had to off somebody, the best way to do it was to get them someplace high, above 75 feet, and knock them off, off a roof, out the window, what have you, and then scream as if in panic to cover up the screams of the person who's falling. This also would add to the appearance of an accidental slip and fall or a suicide. 13 floors up is probably a pretty good height. The day before the Olsons reinterned Dr. Olson's body, Eric Olson held a press conference where he charged his father's death was a murder conducted by the CIA designed to cover up any evidence Dr. Olson may have about their operations and ensure total security and secrecy. The Olson children did file a complaint in the U.S. district courts, but it was dismissed because the previous settlement that the Olson family had agreed to back in the 70s contained a clause saying you ain't going to sue us again for the death of your husband. However, with the complaint were attached a bunch of documents, and the federal judge couldn't help but to note in his dismissal order that the documents really do paint a pretty good picture of murder. So that kind of covers the facts, except maybe for one that I should throw in. When Olson hit the concrete and the police arrived, the night manager of the hotel went to the night operator to see if by chance anyone had called room 1018A. And she said yes. As was common at the time, she listened in on the phone call. Well, guess what was said? There's an outgoing call made to a Long Island number as soon as Olson hit the concrete. She said the conversation consisted of only two sentences. The caller saying, well, he's gone. And the receiver saying, well, that's too bad. Both hung up. So who is it that lives in Long Island? Do you remember? That's right, our good old buddy Dr. Aversom, CIA and MK Ultra scientist extraordinaire. Okay, this this whole situation really raises some questions in my mind. First, would it be possible for Dr. Olson to throw himself through a window? In today's world, windows, especially in high-rise buildings, are tempered to be exceedingly strong. And trying to jump through one is like trying to jump through a concrete wall. If you look online, there's a, a Toronto attorney named Gary Hoy, who loved to demonstrate how safe the safety glass was in their building whenever new employees would start working there, and he would do so by throwing his full weight against the window. Now, the window never broke, but one day 
the frame holding the glass gave way. Mr. Boy and the giant pane of glass, which hadn't broken, fell, I forget how many stories, to the ground and killed him and presumably the glass. I tried to research how high-rise windows would have been made in the 50s, but I never really got an answer to that question. Without finding any glass on Olsen's body, is it possible that the window was broken before he jumped or fell or was thrown or what have you? My second big question. That second autopsy that was conducted by Eric Olsen's pathologist reported that there was massive head and chest injuries that both of which couldn't be attributed to the fall. Again, the pathologist said, well, the head injury knocked him silly. He was thrown out the window, and the fall is what caused the chest trauma. But if we don't know how tough the windows are during this time, is it possible that Wilson could have dove through the window, suffered the head trauma that way, and then fallen and landed on his back? That seems unlikely considering the other evidence that we have, but that would explain, in part, why the original coroner's report suggested suicide and didn't question the injuries to the head and the chest. My third question is, why did Olsen even need to be killed? If he were institutionalized, as everyone planned for him to be, wouldn't this discredit any claims he made in the future? I mean, think about it. When we hear someone that's claiming, you know, the government's listening into their phone conversations and they've got satellites over their house and blah, 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 blah. We just kind of jump to the conclusion that dude's got a screw loose, right? And then if we were to learn that that same fella had just been released from a psychiatric facility, we'd be like, yeah, dude's definitely nuts. Well, that's what Olsen was going to be. The CIA didn't have to worry about him exposing secrets or whatnot because nobody was going to believe anything he said. He was a loony that was just released from a psych ward. So I don't think the CIA had anything truly to worry about. So in my opinion, which I know you've all been waiting for with bated breath, after looking at all the facts, I've come up with two plausible theories about what really happened to Dr. Olson. My first is that considering the ultra-secretive and paranoid nature of the CIA during this period of time, Gottlieb, through Abramson, again, one of his psychiatrists, directed Lashbrook to make sure Olson did not survive the trip home to ensure complete security of the program. Remember, even Olson created security procedures where people couldn't even enter the Special Operations Division with so much as a pencil in their pocket. So this really wouldn't be all that shocking that they would take security a little too far. My second theory, which no one has really discussed or looked into, monkey revenge. Yeah, I bet you thought I had forgotten about the monkeys. I did not. So in conclusion, uh, this is a very sad story. Um, And it demonstrates what happens when those people in power start prioritizing the needs of the country over the rights of individuals. There was no need for Dr. Olson to suffer this fate. It was cruel, and it was uncalled for. There are multiple points in this tale where Dr. Olson's path could have been altered for the better. He could have been transferred to a new department. He could have continued receiving counseling to help him recover. He could have been institutionalized as planned. Certainly, with the knowledge he had, the CIA would have some 
justification in keeping an eye on Dr. Olson if he left the agency, but there was no need to have him killed. The purpose of the CIA is to collect, analyze, evaluate, and disseminate foreign intelligence and to perform covert actions. Nowhere in there does it say a thing about, you know, dosing citizens with LSD or killing citizens they deem expendable. Now, speaking as a lawyer, it's disappointing that Mrs. Olson accepted that settlement agreement in the 70s. It was a great move by the Ford administration. By doing so, it made sure that they never had to go into court to discuss this matter. And had I been White House counsel back then, I would have said pay any amount of money to keep this mess out of the courts. If the case was filed in the late 90s like Eric Olson wanted, it seems pretty likely that the Olsons would have been able to get into some real discovery because they had provided enough documents to the district judge that he thought there may be a murder afoot. Now, getting those documents from an intelligence agency involving matters of national security would have been one heck of a battle. Every page would have been a war to try to secure. And the government could hide behind so many privileges and benefit from dragging this out and playing the game as long as it wanted to because it didn't cost them nearly what it would cost the Olsons to fight this battle. And don't blame Mrs. Olson for taking the 7500000 but purely from a legal point, a lawyer's point of view, it's really disappointing. And thus concludes this episode. I picked this story for the opening episode of this podcast because of all the mystery I remembered surrounding Olson's death. It ended up being much more a story of corruption rather than a tale of mystery once I dug into it. And I have to blame Stephen Kaiser for that because he wrote an amazingly thorough article on this case that was published in The Guardian in September 2019 called From Mind Control to Murder. Like, if you have any interest in this case, go find that article and read it. It is absolutely fantastic. Of course, I also gained some information from Wikipedia, duh, and from a website called the frankolsonproject.org. This is a website that's been set up to help kind of preserve the story of Dr. Olson's life and help folks understand the events that led to his death. One thing is I'm never going to end an episode on a downer. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff here. It's not always fun. So we got to do a little pick me up at the end. I call it the palate cleanser. And this one won't involve monkeys. All right. So it's the palate cleanser is essentially terrible joke time. And here's what we got. What does a nosy pepper do? Gets jalapeno business. Oh, I can, I can hear the six-year-olds spitting milk out of their nose all across the country right now. I love it. Okay, well, thank you all so much for listening. If you enjoyed this mess, please make sure you throw the podcast a good rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you could also sub- subscribe if you're interested, that would be amazing. Finally, if you have any questions, ideas, tips, hit me up at info at kmhpodcast.com. With that, we're done. So cordially, I am Brad. Good day.